Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Marianne McIndoe, the new head of ESG stewardship at Parnassus Investments, an investment firm based in San Francisco with over $50 billion in assets under management. She's the chair of the firm's proxy voting committee and is responsible for oversight of the firm's proxy voting, ESG engagements, and stockholder proposal strategy. Prior to joining Parnassus in 2022, Marianne was the head of ESG strategy and engagement at Uber Technologies. She acted as the director of investment stewardship at Charles Schwab and prior to that as an analyst and advisor for Chevron on ESG issues. Marianne was also the first director of ESG research at Glass-Lewis & Company. In this podcast, we talk about the evolution of ESG based on her experience working on the proxy advisor, corporate and investment fronts. We also discuss ESG activism, including the engine number one proxified with ExxonMobil, Silicon Valley's approach to ESG, the renewed criticisms and politicization of ESG, and the new proposed SEC climate disclosure regime. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Marianne, it is so good to have you in the Boardroom Governance podcast. We met a few months ago when you were still at Uber in your role on ESG, and we talked about doing a podcast episode, and here we are. Uh, You have a new role uh, at Parnassus uh, doing investments, and it's uh, great to have this conversation broadly about corporate governance, but also ESG. So welcome to the Boardroom Governance podcast, and thank you for taking the time. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Evan. I appreciate it so much. And uh, for the opportunity to be on Boardroom Governance, I love the podcast. I love the the long form conversations and the guests that you have on um, always bring so much insight. So thanks for hosting the podcast. Um, I'm also a commuter uh, by BART. And Great. podcasts are my absolute favorite uh, form of uh, a way, way to kill time on the on the BART train. So I'm a podcast enthusiast and a governance enthusiast. So this is exactly where, where I want to be. I feel like I've arrived. It's funny you say that because I used to work at Stanford and I used to commute down from San Francisco to Stanford and I used to listen to podcasts, right? It's about an hour each way. And and that's how I got hooked up on on podcasts. So I, I do share the passion for listening to different episodes. And the reality is this podcast was born because I listened to a lot of podcasts, but never there, there weren't many podcasts on governance. And so I said, well, if there isn't any, maybe I should start one. And here we are. Yeah, that's um, and governance has gotten so much more interesting and important, you know, over the years, I'm sure like the top, the conversations you've been able to have and the people you've been able to have it with is, has just gotten more and more uh, interesting through the years. Exactly. And and I think that's what's fascinating. And, and it's not only in the US, right? It's all over the world. So you can kind of peel this onion and, and try to have conversations about different items. Uh, but, you know, obviously, I want to talk to you about ESG. But before we go there, I'd like to talk about my guests and their origin story and your personal and professional background. Tell us more about you. Tell us where you were born, where you grew up, and we'll go from there until your current role at Parnassus. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So so I grew I grew up the first, you know, 1 to 12, I lived in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And then at age 12, you know, and I don't remember much of it. Uh, and then 12 to 18, I lived in rural Texas, uh, mm-hmm. really rural Texas, about two and a half hours um, 
east of Dallas uh, and about an hour west of Texarkana in, in like this area of the country that was really, really different from, um, you know, from, from, from Allentown and, you know, an urban area in the outskirts of Philadelphia and, and to go to an area that was really culturally different. And, and it taught me a lot about adaptation um, and also that you can be successful anywhere, uh, you know, at making friends or thriving in different environments and, and meeting really interesting people. Um, and when I left the town's called Naples, Texas. So when I moved out of Naples, Texas and went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, which is, you know, arguably, you know, <laughs> potentially the, the most left leaning college uh, sure. in, in the world. I'll say that I'll say in the world, <laughs> uh, arguably um, to go from, you know, such a such a right, such a red state and environment. Uh, and then to go into this, you know, quite small liberal arts college in, in Northwest where the, you know, the, the topography is different and the people are different. And I'd never seen such interesting and de- dense city either. Uh, so so I really, really loved my time there and started my interest in economics um, when, when I was getting my undergraduate degree there. Um, and then was also very interested in um, the urban planning of the city that I lived in. My mm-hmm. mom was mayor in the town where I lived for a while in Naples, Texas. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved to Portland, I was like, oh my gosh, like the things you can do with a city. Uh, so when I graduated from Reed, my first thought was let's, I'm going to go get my urban planning degree. So I, so I went to London School of Economics. I was there in 03, 04. Loved the program. I loved learning about cities. Um, I loved learning about the politics of shared spaces. You know, I never thought about building for whom. Like, what what is a city? What is a citizen? When you build a building, who are you building it for? Or a road? Or you know, how, how or infrastructure? Um, but it was over the course of the program that that I also became a little disenchanted about the efficacy of the public sector and their ability to affect real change and to make the world better. Because that's what I you know I really want to make the world better. That was like sort of a north star. That I, that I was following. And, and it just, it didn't feel at that time that the public sector was incredibly effective. And, and I don't know that it's gotten any better since 03, 04. And, and I, I would say there, there does seem to have been a, a general abdication of uh, corporate citizenship or citizenship from the government to corporations. And I think you can see that manifest in, in a variety of different ways. So what I saw was corporations, companies, right? They hold the keys to the castle, right? They, they, they hold the keys to the castle of change. So if companies could see the value proposition in front of them of fitting into an ecosystem of stakeholders, everyone would be better off. If you really want to make a difference, companies are where. So I wanted to be part of that story. So so like so many people in the in the governance world, I, I started my position uh, being a seasonal uh, analyst during proxy season, right? Just a temporary position, proxy season job, a few months at, at Glass Lewis um, in January 2005, which was Glass Lewis second proxy season. So they were still sinking their teeth into it as well. And I spent- the- Was that in London or was that back in the US? That was in San Francisco. Yeah. In San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. So, so you I- came back from, from England to San Francisco. Yep. I came back and I went to go live in Portland and uh, I couldn't find a job there. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just wasn't, it just wasn't happening. So I was like, okay, look, I'll move to San Francisco for three months, four months, whatever. And then I'll go back to Portland uh, but that's not how it worked out. <laughs> that's, okay. 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 Great. Uh, that was uh, not the not the path that was meant for me. So you know, I started Glass Lewis, and the first thing you learn is what is a proxy? Like, what is a public company? What do boards do? Like, I mean, these are all things that you kind of ambiently know, just you know, being a citizen of the world. But, but you got to really understand them to help make decisions. What is shareholder value? How is it created? How is it sustained? Uh, so I stayed at Glass Lewis for seven years. Um, it was a great experience. I learned so much. Um, and, and of course, over those seven years, there was a lot 
of evolving going on 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 my part, um, on the part of Glass Lewis, and and also on the part of companies um, and investors, and and just a general elevation of the importance of the work. You know, at that time, ESG engagement, like as it is now, it did it didn't exist then, really, mm-hmm. right? SASB didn't exist, you know, and of course, like pioneers like Parnassus, you know, where I work now, you know, they existed, but but ESG as it is understood today was just so new. Um, mm-hmm. It was still a time of like defining the shareholder value links to natural and human capital. Um, so as a proxy generalist there, my first few years, I covered all ballot items, right? Directors, compensation, auditors. Um, and after a few years years there, Glass-Lewis uh, decided, hey, you know, we need, we need to up our game on shareholder proposals because up until then, proxy generalists uh, covered those. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, shareholder proposals can be on governance issues uh, or environmental issues or social issues. Right. And the proposals can be so deep and so nuanced and there's so many of them. So they decided to stand up a function to just really focus on understanding those issues and and telling the shareholder value story or lack thereof um, in their proxy research paper. So I took on that role and became the first director of ESG research there. So I wrote policies and analyzed every single shareholder proposal in the world for years until I left uh, in, in okay. 2011. And that's, you know, what a great way to learn, right? Okay. And so from there, you, you, you went to Chevron, so you went on the corporate side. I did. Yeah. So when I tapped out at Glass Lewis, I went to Chevron, which I know a lot of people were like, what? Why, why did you go there? Even at the time. And, you know, number one is they they had a world-class governance program, right? Lydia Beebe was the corporate secretary Mm -hmm. then, a titan of governance, also from the Bay Area. And I was really excited for the opportunity to work with her and work for her. Uh, But second was Chevron at that time uh, had the distinction of the most shareholder proposals on any ballot, anywhere, going back and forth with uh, Exxon at 12 or 13 during those years. So now, I, I don't know if you follow this, Evan, but some mm-hmm. companies get more than 20. Right. Like one wow. company this year got 24 proposals and it blows my mind. Like at that time, like 12 was a lot, you know, mm-hmm. get 12, print eight sort of thing. Now it's get 24. And I, I don't know. It's, it's a lot of resources going into it. Uh, so I worked there for seven years in the corporate secretary function and then in policy helped launch uh, Chevron's first ESG engagement program. Like they were engaging, right? I, I, I'm i not going to say they didn't, but as a formal institutional ESG engagement program, helped launch that, uh, wrote corporate responsibility report. did which, a- which I should say at this point that maybe that is a distinction that it has with ExxonMobil, which famously never engaged with investors. And that ended up with their uh, engine number one case later on where uh, investors voted out, uh, basically, or, or voted in a few directors, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I in, in my experience, work, I, I can't speak to, you know, what Exxon's experiences was with their shareholders. But, you know, back mm-hmm. in when I was at Chevron, when I was there, it was really important to us to listen and to respond and, and to be thoughtful in, in how we responded. Um, yeah, I did the first uh, the first materiality assessment so that the corporate responsibility report would, would focus on the material ESG mm-hmm. issues facing the company. Mm-hmm. I think they called it something else. So issue prioritization. And, you know, that was interesting. Wrote responses to shareholder proposals, um, responded to investor inquiries. And, and after seven years, I, I wanted to switch seats at the table. And okay. the really fun thing, like Glass Lewis, I advise investors on companies. And then at Chevron, I advised the company on investors. And mm-hmm. so I was like, all right, I want to be the one. <laughs> pushing the vote button, like, I want to be the investor now, uh, and an opportunity opened up at Schwab. Mm-hmm. 
And so there you, you were part of the investment stewardship team, which is fairly new, right, at the time. Uh, yeah, they they had a program there that voted proxies, uh, of course, yeah. and, and they had uh, thoughtful proxy voting policies. But what they didn't do at that time was have an ESG engagement program. So that's mm-hmm. one of the things I do now. I uh, ESG engagement program, Appleseed, <laughs> my career. Uh, and we built out some new policies on shareholder proposals. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed sitting on that side of the table and seeing how you know, ESG considerations are factored into proxy voting decisions are into policies and, uh, and the investment process. And, and, I, and I really couldn't say enough good things about the team there and the work that we did together. But then I went to a conference uh, in 2019. I went to a conference. Um, it was either CII or the, the Council of Institutional Investors or the yeah. Society Conference in 2019. And I saw Keir Gums uh, and Tony West talk about Uber on a panel and Mm -hmm. Uber's approach to governance and culture and safety and drivers. And the only word I could use at that time and to this day is enchanted. Um, I was just enchanted by their authenticity, um, their humility, uh, their, their pride, uh, professionalism. And, and I knew when I saw them, I wanted to be part of it. Like, Mm. and, and it just so happens at that time, you know, they had just gone public um, so the background that I was bringing in, you know, again, with ESG engagement program, Appleseed, like mm-hmm. that was something they wanted to do was, you know, mature their ESG engagement program, build out an ESG strategy, get their ESG reporting on the ground, off the ground. Um, and it was, my, I mean, my background was was particularly well suited to not only do the investor engagement side, but also to help launch a launch a program, because that's what I did at Chevron. So I had like the two two sides of the the background where I kind of I kind of brought to them uh, these the, my informed by the experiences that I had to, to, that fit into pre- dovetail pretty well with what what they were needing. So I was there two years, mm-hmm. two great years, uh, two really productive years. Um, I started in April 2020, so it was two weird years. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Dude, in, in the was, pandemic. Yeah, it was a pandemic. Uh, you know, a computer was mailed to me, and I didn't meet my colleagues for like a year. Um, that was it. Was too really strange, really weird. And you know, it's the pandemic wasn't the only thing going on then either. You know, there was also just a national or global reckoning on race sure. um, and the protests around that. Um, there was devastating fires here. You know, as an ESG professional, one morning and as a person, as a human, you know, I, mm-hmm. I went downstairs and the sun the sun didn't come out. Here yeah. in the Bay Area, right? I mean, you, you live in the Bay yeah, Area. Sure. You remember those days? Yeah. So weird. I do remember. And so 2020 was weird, and then 2021 was also weird. Um, 2022 is not looking much better. <laughs> right. So, okay. And then you decide to leave Uber and join Parnassus. So, why don't you tell us more about your current role at Parnassus? What, what is Parnassus? I know they have a long history with ESG, uh, maybe before the acronym was created, but uh, tell us your your new focus. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I left Uber about a month ago. So I've been in my new role here at Parnassus Investments for, you know, six, seven weeks. Um, and my title is head of ESG stewardship, uh, which is a new role. Uh, although, you know, they've been doing ESG investing since the 80s, right? They're like old school. And and I'm, I'm really grateful that I'm learning from these like super advanced professionals who sometimes I'm like, I've done ESG for 18 years. And and but then you go somewhere like this and it's people who've been doing it since I was in high school, you know, it's, it's yeah. really impressive. So, so my new role 
you know, again, they've been doing ESG for a long time, but it, it helps to look at the ESG process at, at Parnassus as two, two parts, right? So one is ESG integration, and that's factoring ESG into investment decision making. And then the other is stewardship. So the activities we take after we um, hold a stock. And, and it'd be it would be folly to say like they don't they don't overlap. Like there's there's a very, very densely colored <laughs> Venn diagram. Uh, so there's two, and then in that there's two timeframes, right? There's one is pre-investment and one is post-investment. So pre-investment at Parnassus, we have a screen and and there's some things on there that have been there, you know, basically, you know, since the beginning from the early days of SRI, you know, alcohol, weapons, gambling, tobacco, et cetera. Then there's another category for controversial business activities, which is a list that's a little bit more dynamic um, and includes industries like private prisons, for example, or... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, for profit education. Uh, and then there's a final category for deficient ESG practices. And, and that captures not industries, but individual companies that we feel fall short of, of our expectations and wouldn't help us fulfill our mission, which is to build wealth responsibly for long-term investors. So those are the categories of the screen. And, and that's so a lot of that's integration. So let me ask you a question. And, and this is uh, just because I don't know. So this is taking positions in public equities and it's not in an index fashion. It's it's more of an, an active stock picking way. And you decide, okay, we're going to allocate X amount to these companies. That's correct. It's active. Okay. Uh, and then we also have a fixed income fund as well. So not just equities, it's also uh, debt. Okay, perfect. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, and the so fixed the, income goes through the same process. Mm-hmm. So the fixed income is ESG also. So let's talk a little bit about ESG, you know, <laughs> One of the things that I, I always mention, and maybe a lot of my listeners are sick of hearing this joke, but uh, Joe Grunfest at Stanford always said that ESG can also stand for uh, extremely subjective guessing. Uh, so why don't we break it down uh, in terms of how do you think about ESG and with the environmental side, the social issues and the governance side? What would be like an easy framework that you use for directors, for people listening, just because uh, this is... This is all happening now, and there is a big backlash. And we'll talk about the backlash and the criticisms, which I believe, or at least I think, uh, it's it's as high as it has been in a long time. So why don't we start with your framework, and, and maybe that will help a lot of the listeners think about ESG in a more simple way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, e- ES and G, they're really hard to separate. <laughs> They think they're all related. And, you know, first and foremost, G, right? G, governance, that underpins all of your success Mm -hmm. in the E and the S. And for any business, for any business, the G is underpinning your success. Who's making decisions and with what information? What are the incentives that boards are using to drive behaviors or management is using to help drive behaviors to, to reach your strategic goals, to build and sustain value? Like that's G. And that's you know, if you get G right, you know, everything else should fall into place. Who's sitting on the board? Like that's the number one G G question that I that I ask myself. Well, it's it's interesting you say that. I, I had a, a prior uh, guest, uh, Anne Sheehan. You remember, you know, Anne Sheehan oh, from yeah, Kelsters. Yeah, yeah. And she said, "Well, I always thought the acronym should be GES, and the governance should come first because it's the, you know, the framework in which everything else relies." So it's it's good to hear you say the same thing where the G is kind of the underlying uh, premise of, of it all. Yep, I, I, com- I completely agree. You know, you want to know who who's on the board. Are they capable? Are they engaged? Are they experienced? Are they diverse? Are they coming to the board meetings and asking difficult questions? I mean, are they asking 
Here's a here's an even better one. Are they asking simple questions? Are they asking? Are they expecting simple answers back? Like because I think that's really important is that there's not an obfuscation of information from management to the boards or or vice versa. So who's on the board? What information they're getting? Where are their eyes? And and trying to answer the question, you know, from my perspective through proxy voting and engagement, are they showing up for me? Like are they showing up for investors and representing our interests? And, and I know that investors aren't monoliths, right? Like showing up for, for me is like not the same as for everyone, but like, but I think we can universally say like, we want our directors engaged and we want them to have different qualities that they're bringing to the conversations and different experiences that you get from being a woman or a man or your professional background or, or your, uh, your, your ethnicity or your race. And, you know, just a capacity to represent shareholders in the boardroom. And that's table stakes for me at this point, a high quality, competent, diverse board. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so does, does that mean that in your new role, you're actually engaging with directors and you're reaching out and discussing certain topics or, or does it not reach to that level? Is there, is there maybe, you know, through proxy or through letters or actually do you spend time and sometimes talk to directors and companies that you are going to invest in or that you invested in? Yeah, I do think there's an expectation that companies should make directors available when it's important and when they, when an investor asks, when Parnassus comes and says, hey, look, I'd really like to talk to a director, the comp committee lead, the nomgov committee lead, the chair. You know, it, I think it's important that they make directors available. I haven't done it yet since I just started, mm-hmm. but, I, but I do think that, that that's important. And there's other ways to communicate with boards, whether that's through proxy voting or, or indirectly through engagements with the ESG or IR teams. So let's talk about a, a few cases that I, I think are really interesting and people know about. So we just mentioned the Exxon case. So here is a interesting case where maybe one of the most well-known oil and gas companies in the United States in the world uh, was not responsive to investors. And essentially a small activist fund based here in San Francisco, engine number one, decided to take on and say, look, you guys are not planning in the future. You, the, the climate change is, is real. Uh, basically had the support of the large institutional investors, people like Halsters and BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and, and the proxy advisors, right? Glass-Lewis and ISS. It, it went to a vote and they won and they got three seats. And I think they only invested $35 million, right? That's 0.002% of the market cap. So that shows you that you don't need to have a massive or at least a foothold, as Joe also said, like you only need a nail of the toehold uh, to get in. And it's the quality of the argument. And so you, I'm sure, have a very good take on this, partially because you have worked on a, as a proxy advisor, you've worked on Chevron. Uh, and, and what does this mean? What is the lesson for directors out of this campaign? And how has the market changed after the Exxon vote? And how are our directors thinking about this? Yeah, what 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 a story that is, right? I mean, such a small amount, really impressive, and getting three climate-oriented directors on such a historic board, you know, mm-hmm. much against the company's wishes, you know. And k- kudos to to Engine Number One for their strategic work and their well-researched, well-supported, well-communicated work. You know, they carried the mantle on this, like they they lit the flame. But to your point. It was the idea that won the day, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it was, they came to, they didn't come to like NGOs with this idea. They came not just to like a room of random investors. These were 
Exxon's investors. These were people who owned Exxon shares and they said, look, we think this is important. And, you know, that's their right as shareholders. Investors say we want this. And, you know, I took my uh, some FINRA testing and, you know, that's one right common shareholders have is to express their their votes through proxy voting. And and I think it's just so impressive. Um, and what makes this time, this zeitgeist of, of ESG and proxies is so interesting and, and exciting. And so to answer your question, uh, my advice to boards uh, on the evolution of ESG or how to think about ESG activism is to read the room, right? You know, whether it's a shareholder proposal, you know, garden variety shareholder proposal, or it's a proxy fight like this, or, you know, just, just read the room. The, the definition of materiality for, for company, for anyone Supreme Court, right? It has an audience. Mm-hmm. And that audience is the reasonable investor. And if you're resistant to change and evolution and, you know, you're, you're bringing out a hammer when what's needed is, uh, you know, a screwdriver or, or maybe maybe you need a cup of tea, right? <laughs> like, we're, we're, you know, maybe you don't need a hammer at all. It's, uh, you know, we're all on the same team, which is team build value for the company. And, and I think it's important that boards recognize that and, and, and also recognize that, you know, 90% of the S&P 500 is intangible now, right? Only 10% is tangible. So how you think about ESG issues and how you steward ESG issues, it matters. Like human capital driving these outcomes matters and your ability, figurative and literal ability to operate, it really matters. So if you're a director and you're on a board, like just don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like you don't, you don't have to accept everything that a shareholder activist says to you, but really take the time to say, what's what's true in this like what's true in this like what what mirror should i be looking in and and to t- extract from this what is actually beneficial for my company and beneficial for the shareholders and try to try to get that done and, and i think that's probably and lots of boards are doing this right collectively um and then individual directors who, who are driving this kind of thinking in their own boards so here is a, a question that maybe you, you're also in a good position to answer right um in a campaign if you get the vote of like the three majors, which is BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, they own about 20, 25% of every company. Uh, you get the vote of Glass-Lewis and ISS, they swing about 20% of the vote. You are very close to getting a majority vote. And so isn't that like a new thing? And, and partially that's the criticism that, that we will get to, where a few players, if people that you can fit in a, in a conference room, actually have the power to swing these votes at this stage, right? Larry Fink with BlackRock has $10 trillion of assets under management. And there are a few of these players that matter a lot more than what they used to. But it, is, the, is the dynamic of the voting changed? And you can put $35 million into a company. And if you are able to convince these players, you're done. You don't need to invest uh, uh, much more than that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to to acknowledge that the proxy voting has obviously changed a lot uh, over the course of the years, and and especially with the rise of indexed investing. And, and it used to be, you know, if someone was an indexed investor, and they'd say, "Why should I care about proxy voting? I'm I'm indexed." Uh, and now, to it being one of the most important tools when you can't share sell your shares, right? It's like I'm holding this company essentially with permanent capital. So that means I better make sure this company's, you know, t- taking care of long term. Like I want to make sure they're thinking. So these, you know, the proxy advisors, to the extent they influence BlackRock, Vanguard, any major proxy voter, they're spending a lot of time thinking about these issues. And they're spending a lot of time, you know, mapping this to shareholder value and, and thinking about how these issues issues really 
you know, impact the company and talking to the companies and talking to them year round about stuff. And, and so I, I think that it's it's uh, not inappropriate for uh, proxy voters to, to who are spending time looking at these issues to have influence over it. And, and index voting ha- has made a big difference in that, too. So. Uh, we obviously live in the Bay Area and, and, and Silicon Valley, and you worked for Uber, which is one of the, you know, I guess it was a unicorn, and then it's one of the major tech companies. How do you rate Silicon Valley and tech companies in the ESG world? I mean, one way to think about this and over the years, when you think about the public side of corporate governance, there's been more and more shareholder rights given to major investors, say on pay, proxy access, many things that over the last 30 years, shareholders have gotten. But in Silicon Valley, at some level, people said, wait a minute, you know, we are the visionaries. And a lot of the tech titans, right, have got dual class shares, uh, make the decisions and say, we're going to go public, but we make the decisions, right? We don't want to deal with all these institutional investors or activists or, you know, the SEC, short sellers. And it's not the case of Uber because Uber had their own governance scandal where they collapsed the dual class share structure. But so by the time they went public, they had a one share, one vote. But, uh, you know, you were an insider at Uber. So maybe it's interesting. What's the perspective from Silicon Valley in terms of ESG and what, what is the thought process? Is there a different approach here as it is maybe in Wall Street, maybe in New York, maybe in other places? Is there some cultural difference? Oh, dual class boards, those are the worst. Or <laughs> dual class shares, that's the worst. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm going to give Silicon Valley on on you know blanket score the whole, all of it. Uh, I'm going to give it an E. Um, mm. which at my elementary school, meant needs improvement. <laughs> Um, but you know, of course, every company is different, right? And and they all and they all have their own individual. One of the things that my uh, you know to a hammer, everything's a nail. Like I always say, you got to do a materiality assessment. Like you have to do it. Like that's ground zero for like a good ESG program. And then you teach me what matters to you as a company. But you know, of course, there's some that that cross are cross cutting, like human capital management. That's really important. Climate change is important, no matter who you are, where political activities, ethics, right? And and there's varying exposure. Across across these kinds of companies, so they all get different grades. A, you get an A, you get an E, you get an F on, on whatever it is. And but but generally speaking, like my my thoughts on you know these tech companies in Silicon Valley generally is, I'd say don't grow so fast that you don't see the damage you're doing to yourself, right? <laughs> like that. Wow, you know, that is sort of against the mantra of growth at all costs, which has yep. burnt a lot of companies. Growth but at all growth, costs is a bad yeah. strategy for a sustained right. growth. It's not. Mm-hmm. How how you do something is just as important th- as that you do it. Embed, uh, you know, considerations of your stakeholders from the beginning. And, and I'll give you an example. And so in, in 2017, a new CEO took over an embattled technology company in the ride hail sector. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can guess which one that is. Yes. You know, G yes. scandals, S scandals, you know, value vanishing in mm-hmm. real time. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, the old CEOs out, the new CEOs in and Imagine like in that moment, that CEO, right, he, he's he's got this whole new task about him and he goes to the mayors of the world. That's their ecosystem is like, I'm, I'm in cities and go to the mayors and say, hey, do you want our company to grow in your city? Let's grow together. The mayors would have said, no, you know, mm-hmm. we don't want you in our city to grow. We don't want you in our city at all. And that's because cities saw the company as acting contrary to its own objectives on the treatment of drivers, on safety, on discrimination and harassment, on ethics and culture and climate. And that's not an ESG problem. 
right? Mm-hmm. That's a business problem. And and I think it's kind of interesting how like sometimes there's like a line when it crosses from being an ESG problem to a financial problem. And then it's <laughs> and then for some reason it's different. Um, but, you know, technology has got a tremendous uh, capability to change the world. And we've seen it improve things on E, so many interesting things like on S, I'm a type one diabetic and there's a tech companies out there trying to make like an artificial pancreas that I can just like have. And I mean, what an amazing E and S outcomes they can, you know, live, get your time back, live longer, live better. Like, but you know, there's also, we have seen and are seeing and will continue to see unintended consequences of products that have to be thought about and remedied like undermining democracy or misinformation fomenting violence or, you know, facial recognition software that um, has disparate impacts on people with uh, darker skin tones, right? Algorithms making decisions, real-time location data. Like this is, this is stuff. This is real stuff. So, so my advice to these companies, which they ask me all the time, they don't ask me is, you know, front load, front load on principles, like front load on purpose, you know, get your, get your human rights policy, get your ethics, get your red lines, get your accountability systems in place early, like start early and embed it in product development, embed it in tech so that you don't end up with a really cool product at the end. And then you're like, Oh, privacy. (laughs) We forgot about privacy or we forgot about cybersecurity or, you know, sit in a room and be like, how could you use this product? for bad things like like literally like test the corners of your mind about like where this product is going from the beginning and and that's g right like these policies these systems this accountability like get your g right and then hopefully your e and your s will will, will take now, care of themselves i think you're right on all of this and it makes me think even at the very basic framework where they don't even have a board that is beyond the investors and the founders and as they approach to getting public oh, we need to have independent directors, right? So if you have those holes in your board, imagine the rest, right? And so the basic frameworks need to be kind of thought out. And it takes me to the next question, which uh, let me be the contrarian here. The criticisms of ESG, I would say in the last two or three months have become really loud. And they've become really loud because the people that are, uh, criticizing ESG are some of the most notorious tech titans. So Peter Thiel goes out and he says that ESG is a hate factory for naming enemies. Uh, Elon Musk uh, a few days ago says that ESG is a scam. Uh, Mark Andreessen is amplifying this message. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence says this is all a radical ESG a- agenda. People are calling this uh, woke capitalism. People are calling this uh, greenwashing. Uh, it's become politicized, where now uh, it's a Republican versus a liberal issue, which is really a new thing, right? And ESG suddenly is an acronym that is being vilified. And so what do you make of these criticisms? And any thoughts on this? And I'm sure this has come up because you are in the middle of the ESG kind of industry, but what's what's your response to this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because some of the criticisms are greenwashing and some are that it's making too much change. So you know, <laughs> right. those are kind of like antithetical. But you know what I think, you know, most of all, my number one thought is that it's sad. Like, it's just sad that ESG is being politicized. That's not going to help anyone. Like, it's you can pick out, you know, e- ESG... It needs to, we need to do a better job communicating. Like I need to do a better job communicating the business case for ESG. It's not right. It's not left. It's not center. It's not political. Like this is about making, driving value for 
stockholders and stakeholders. It's I need to do a better job of differentiating between values based decision making, which, you know, is OK. People people do that. And then, you know, value based decision making, which is, you know, what I consider to be, you know, ground zero for ESG is like actually looking at the time horizons might be different. Right. I mean, the, the time horizons for ESG opportunities are often longer term. ESG risks, you could see, you you could open up Google News right now and see ESG risks on the front page, you know, perceived performance or actually performance deficiencies, you can see it. So, you know, at Parnassus, what, what we, how we look at this is we think values created best when companies are thinking about their stakeholders alongside the financial metrics that they're using, you know, when they're doing business planning or they're doing a strategic decision making, you know, we want you to be thinking about your ecosystem, you know, the people that are working for you, the people that are using your your products, the, the fence line communities around you, uh, preparing for a changing climate. So the direct impacts, right? Like what's, the sun doesn't come out, you know, it's 143 degrees in, in India. Like we want to know you're thinking about that and planning for regulation. Like, and, and all of these are, are questions about, you know, prosperity and like prosperity for our, our fund investors and for companies and society more broadly. And I just want to make sure that like that, that message gets across you know, ESG looks different, right? You can weight E differently. You can weight S differently. You can weight G. You could screen out tobacco and not care about climate change. And, and like, and I think that kind of helps with the misinformation campaign is like how people like apply those factors differently. Like people are allowed to weight different things differently. And, and well, I think that- that's a, a great example is is how Tesla just got booted out of the S&P 500 uh, ESG index. And, and that's what prompted uh, Elon Musk to say, Extra Marvel is in the index of yep. uh, ESG and, and we are booted out. This is a scam, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, on that, what I would say is that, you know, the methodology for that index is, is pretty public, you know, and, and how they calculate it and what they do and like the, the tools that they're using to make decisions are are, are clear. Um, and, you know, whether I agree with that or not is 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 not as important as the fact that people who are using that index, like they should be aware of what they're, of the kinds of criteria that are being used to make decisions. Yeah, and so this is this is obviously created a, a backlash. You, you mentioned uh, that one one lens to use is is the stakeholder lens. Uh, in 2019, the Business Roundtable issued uh, the new purpose of corporation, saying it's not only about maximizing the value for shareholders, but you should bring value to all the stakeholders. And uh, you know, there's now a strong focus on the employees, on customers, on supply chains on the environment um, and, and shareholders, as it was put in the end, right? Like the number five. But what do you make out of this uh, stakeholder versus shareholder? Do you think this is a real uh, distinction? And by the way, this has been a discussion that is not new. I mean, people debated this uh, in the 80s. This is kind of the Milton Friedman letter famous from the 1970s. But even before, right, in the 1930s, this was also a very important discussion. So it, it's been a big discussion in corporations on purpose. But you, you've mentioned it a couple of times on, on stakeholders. So what is your view on this? On this top, on this yeah, top? you know what? That's interesting. You re referenced the, the BRT statement because I do all the time. Mm -hmm. Like I, I go visit that and I reread it. And I think there was recently some, not an update, but some article about it. And, and I think it's it's really important to listen to companies when they tell you what to pay attention to. And that business roundtable represents some of the biggest companies in the world. And they're saying this does matter. They're telling me it matters, which I already believed it did. But but it's so I try to use their words and the kinds of things that they're thinking about and, and, the, and how they communicate and say, look, tell you tell me this is what's important. How are you thinking about it? How are you planning for it? How are you, you know, governing it 
looking at risks around it. And, and, I, and I think that it's, it's really important. And, and this is something that I drive home all the time about ESG. And, and again, this, the, it's so sad, it's getting politicized. We're all on the same team, right? Like we're all, you know, the people, the raiders and rankers who sometimes people don't like, you know, the proxy advisors who sometimes people don't like, like the investors who people, you know, it's, it's, we're all on this team of building sustainable value. And, and we're all trying to get to the same place. And, and I think the hostility, the, the other day I was talking to a, a, a vendor who, who does a lot of work for issuers. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I want you to do some work for me too. And they said, we can't because of conflict of interest. And after I got that email, I was like, really? <laughs> like, what interests are we talking about here? Like, my interest is for companies to have build value. Like, I want to build wealth responsibly. So what, what is this? Con- what is this conflict? So as it comes to stakeholders and stockholders, you know, I think I think the time horizon thing makes a difference. Like, I don't think that I think you have to take care of your natural and human capital, your fence line communities, your ecosystem. I mean, that's to me like the, on a, on a lot non quarterly time horizon, like you need to take care of your stakeholders to take care of your stockholders. So and, and obviously there is a difference maybe on the view of the role of corporation. In, in the US and in Europe and in Asia, right? The, you know, if you ask someone in Japan, you know, what's the role of the corporation, that answer may be very different to to the US. And, and so it, it, it's a very big topic. Uh, there's a lot of research around this and, and it's a really interesting debate going on, even, uh, you know, academically, but now now much more in the, in the mainstream. You know, another question is the SEC has issued a, a uh, climate change disclosure regime, uh, a, a proposal that is very debated. It's still, uh, I think it, it, it has been the most commented proposal ever. What do you think about this? Uh, some people say, you know, this is beyond the authority of the SEC and, and there's a threat of litigation that the cost benefit analysis is, is, is off and that the cost for corporations is going to be exorbitant, right? There was a report the other day and they said that this is going to cost about $500,000 for smaller issuers and, you know, up to $600,000 for larger issuers to adapt these changes and disclosures. We don't know. Maybe that's on the low end. I think the SEC issued their own cost structure and it's going to cost more. I think it goes from $3.9 billion to $10.2 billion in the cost of these disclosures. What are your thoughts on this? And do you have any take on this new rule? Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I think it's great. But like, you know what else is expensive? Climate change. Like, that's expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's it, we If we've learned nothing from the pandemic, I, I hope that it's, you can't ignore known catastrophes. Like climate change is coming. Like it's here. It's not coming. It's here. You see it. I, I sometimes do a little presentation on climate change and I always update the, the, the talking points at the beginning with, you know, climate change disaster of the day, right? It's floods, it's drought, it's rivers going dry, it's crop yields, it's humidity in home building. And what I, I think it's very important for investors to know that the companies that they invest in are planning for direct physical risks of climate change, which aren't long term. Right. Some of those are very, very present and it's tomorrow. Right. It's what's happening tomorrow. What's happening in the summer. Uh, and then the longer term uh, impacts of transitioning to a low carbon economy. Like I think that's really important, particularly from a portfolio standpoint. Right. Or a systemic, non-diversifiable risk that comes with us not doing enough about climate. I can't do anything about the companies. I can't do anything about climate. We can do something about it. And, and I think those things that we can do are, you know, what we're asking for is disclosure. Like we're not saying change your business model. It's saying just tell us 
So we can make we can make an informed decision about whether or not we want to invest in you. Like, I mean, is are you thinking about the future? Like, is this the kind of company that I want to be invested in? And and the SEC is basically reflecting this desire that says climate change is important for decision making. And I'm so glad this is a conversation, right? Like, I mean, I'm glad it's not Marion writes the rule and like here's the here's the new SEC rule. Well, actually, that would be kind of nice, but. <laughs> but but I'm glad that there's all these voices who are coming into this conversation now. And like, actually, you know, when you see a letter like vitriolic against such things, you know, they're thinking about it, right? Like they're, they're in a room and they're thinking about climate change in ways that they maybe haven't before and thinking about the financial impacts and the transition impacts and, you know, starting these conversations. And I'm hopeful the rules come through. I'm for mandatory scope one and two um, and scope three, too. Like I, I like all of it. Um, uh, and and, yeah, and, and, and see and, where it comes out. But but I think uh, you know we'll we'll see. Yeah, it was interesting to to see one of the uh, SEC commissioners, Hester Pierce, say that uh, we are not the Securities and Environment Commission, at least not yet. This is really interesting. So obviously we could talk for hours on governance, but let let's jump into the rapid fire questions. Uh, what are the one two three books that have greatly influenced your life? Okay, so the first one is Watership Down. You know that book okay. about the bunnies? Well, it was very no. good. Uh, so when I was eight years old, my my mom put a hundred dollars in the middle of the book and said, "If you get to the money and you don't finish the book, you can keep the hundred dollars." And so I raced to the middle of the book and then realized I'd been duped into loving reading. Uh, and I bitterly returned the money. And I have an eight year old daughter now, and I I put forty dollars in the book, and she couldn't care less, right? She's like, wait, 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 there's inflation, right? At I know. You guys are forty. What's 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 going on here? I never go to the bank. I mean, who goes to a bank? Uh, <laughs> and then put the a other, Bitcoin in there. The other two books that <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> so the other two books I'm reading right now are uh, Rise of the Working Class Shareholder, which mm. is super interesting, and about labor's use of capital. Is that David Weber's? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I love that book. It's so interesting. Like it's such an origin story, you know, to mm-hmm. to, to your point, uh, starting in like 2003, 2004, it's it's really interesting. And then Green Swans as well, uh which is sort of the the next iteration of Triple Bottom Line. Okay. That's not the one off the black swan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't I, I don't want any black swans. I'll stick to the green ones. <laughs> okay. Uh who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? Yeah, you know, I have been so blessed uh with really wonderful role models in my life. So it, like, if I was to list them all off, it'd be like accepting an Academy Award speech, just <laughs> listing people out, people who built me up and supported me to be a better person. Uh, but just a, my most recent new addition is is Keir Gums, who is my manager at Uber, who I was enchanted by, as you may remember from, from, mm-hmm. from my origin story. And, and I'm so grateful uh, to him for, for teaching me uh, how to be more authentic and how to be more humble and how to be proud and 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 critical and and open minded and and uh, and then a second one also at Uber uh, is actually a direct report of mine there you know I I am his mentor I guess but he's teaching me so much about the gift of passion and purpose and teaching and learning and ambition um, and brace uh, and and I've learned so much from the two of them over the last two years. Um, at when I was at Uber. Who was the second one? Yeah, his name's Chris Patterson. Okay, great. Great guy. (laughs) All right. Are there any quotes you think of often or live your life by? Yeah, so one that I think of often in my personal and professional life is, why why not you? 
Why, why not you? Why shouldn't it be you? If not you, then who's going to do it? Not, not like mm -hmm. the cookie in the cookie jar, but like, you know, why, why not you? Like if you, when I look and I'm like, oh, you know, we should get quality people on boards. And then I think to myself, why not you? Like, or I'll say that to you, Evan, like, why not you? Like, well, if there's something you want to do, why not you? You know, mm -hmm. uh, I like it. Yeah. yeah. And then the second one I know isn't inspiring, but, but it's don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, especially when it comes to getting started on company's ESG journey, right? Just try, right? Just get started. You know, it's funny if, if, and I should do this. If I uh, take all the quotes of all the guests, my guess is that quote is the number one quote. Really? Which is, yes, yes. Uh, it's really interesting. I'm in good company Perfectly then. Perfectly Yeah, and I think, I think it's, it's a very good one. But why not you? Is that original? <laughs> That's original. Okay, great, great, great. That's great. original. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? uh aquatic snails wow i uh, no had two aquatic snails uh turned out they were they were enamored with each other uh and now we have six and so now i get a real kick out of watching them crawl around so wait so you have them in water or they are land and then they go into no, water they're in an aquarium it's like aquarium snails so we bought fish and i was like oh sure let's get two snails and the next thing i know my daughter was like what's that teensy thing and i was like oh my god like i'm a snail breeder like how does this happen? So now, but they're wow. so cute. Like they're they're really fun to watch. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's original. Uh, finally, which living person do you most admire? Yeah, I am more of a snail person, really. No, I don't know. I mean, I, I, on on a day to day basis, like people that I admire, and and I know this is going to sound cheesy, but I have to say the people who are on my stewardship team at work, it, right now, you know, currently they're teaching me so much about you know their moral compass, pointing due due north, uh, centered on articulating why ESG matters in all of its stripes. But more than that, they're, they're teaching me how it matters, how we the tools we have as investors, um, and companies, and just this relentless optimism about where we are and where we're going and how we what we can do together. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm going to the office and just admiring admiring these people that, that I'm surrounded with now. You know, it's funny. It sounds like you've enjoyed all your roles uh, in your professional career, and that's very good because uh, you've obviously loved ESG and, and your corporate governance career and, and being surrounded by high-level professionals has guided your career. So Marianne, thank you so much for uh, talking to me. It's great to have your point of view and I'm sure we'll connect again, but uh, this was great. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.